0: This episode is sponsored by NIR.
1: Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined
2: podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news
1: source and does not provide investment advice. And now, you're Sheila Warren.
0: Welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren, welcoming you to episode 101. Thank you all for listening and making us one of the most downloaded podcasts on the Coindesk network. This week, we're doing another deep dive on digital identity, this time looking at the intersection of privacy and security. Can security and privacy meet the needs of both traditional institutions worried about compliance and risk, but also consumer protection advocates who care about the underserved and banked? Is this even possible? And if so, how? What would it mean to have a truly portable identity? To address these questions and more, we'll be joined by Greg Kidd, a serial entrepreneur and investor and founder of the Hard Yaka Investment Group. Greg started a digital identity company called Global ID and was an early investor in companies you've probably heard of, Twitter, Square, Ripple, Coinbase, and Twilio. Before we bring in Greg, let's say hello to my co-host, Michael Casey, who's in New York at the Coindesk Idea Summit. Michael, how's that going?
1: I think it's going great. This is just the beginning. We've got a couple of days of this. It's a new idea for us. Uh, obviously, it's somewhat smaller thing than than consensus. A much more targeted uh, audience, really looking to institutional and other investors, and and bringing them and introducing them to a lot of the new ideas and innovations that are happening in the Web three space. And so, we've got a, a a vetted list, if you like, of presentations across a range of different areas of the digital uh, asset economy. And each, each person gets 10, 10, minutes to present their idea. And, and uh, you know, we look for feedback and, and hopefully we bring people together. It's another sort of classic sort of matchmaking exercises. It's been fun. Hmm.
0: I love that. You know, and I also, uh, I have to give a shout out because you and I both were judges for the web 3 and I know you'll be announcing at yes. the idea summit. Yes. The, yeah. The winner's there. Pretty I just met, stuff.
1: I just met the founders of one, I, mean, I can even announce that they're they're winners because this thing is going to be recorded in, after they are announced, so it's all fine. But Refound, uh, uh, who do something that I think our our buddy Jonathan Dotam would be interested in. It's a it's a solution for journalists in war zones and and how they can sort of build communities of trust around uh, a, a protocol and a tokenized system and an encryption. It's it's complicated, but it's really something that obviously. I care about deeply. So I was really pleased to be part of the judging of this. Yeah.
0: Well, I love that. And I have to say, I mean, so many amazing participants that engaged and applied for the Web3athon and, and, and really excited about the final list. And, and security uh, and privacy and being in... the topic of today. Yeah, so exactly. It's, it's right. Relevant to that. So there you go. All right. I'll let <laughs> exactly you go. Exactly right. Hey, you know, Greg, before we switch to our topic of the day, just a quick question for you as kind of a, a serial uh, investor. You know, How do you think about investing during a bear market, which like the one we're in right now?
2: Well, it's a bear market in terms of prices, but the amount of dry powder that's been built up by venture capitals is actually driving investment levels, especially in the seed and A-level that's actually higher than 2021. So it's a it's a bear market if you have assets. But in terms of competition for deals, early deals, later deals are slow. It's game one. Uh, I'm at Race Capital right now, their conference. Uh, Sam from FTX is here. Anatoly from Solana is here. Lightnings in the portfolio. There's money out there. And for things that are going to be part of the 3.0 victory lap, it's game on out here. So really it interesting. Feel like a bear market you're yeah. competing for for deals at that level. It feels like a bear market to me because my stack is smaller <laughs> than it was last year because I, I didn't take other people's money. We actually have our own money. And you know, all those, those crypto assets are burned down a little bit.
1: But the, mm. but the fact that it's the seed that's getting the interest now is like it, it's the building for the future. Like it fits very comfortably with the Biddle thesis that now's the time to build. And therefore, if the guys who are getting funded are the ones who are like laying down that infrastructure, that's, that's really interesting. That's, I would imagine, are all the seed projects. So that's really cool.
2: Yeah. The fair weather sailors, they're out. The, the builders are in. Yeah.
0: Love a kind of bear. Of the <laughs> all the tourists go away. <laughs> Well, on that level, so, so you know, th- talking about kind of infrastructure and core and some of the core aspects of this, uh, security and privacy, you know, are you seeing a lot of activity in those spaces? And maybe just, we'll just start there. Like, are you seeing a, an uptick in that kind of activity now?
2: Well, security and privacy, but the means is through a heightened awareness of why identity is so important. So, and in particular, a form of identity that's not 2.0 identity in a silo, but a form of identity that's portable and interoperable. And when you hear Jack Dorsey, Or do you hear Vitalik carrying the flag? You know that there's something going on. And so we're looking at a form of identity that will work not just in a custodial wallet, but one that could work in non-custodial wallets as well. And we have the potential to see a compliant Web 3.0 world that is secure, that is privacy preserving. That's now a possibility. It's not just a theoretical construct. And folks are scrambling for that real estate now. We're very much focused on, compliant DeFi, compliant web 3.0 that is private and secure. So we believe that's coming in 2023. This is foundation time 2022.
1: Uh, so I'm hearing a lot of talk around this at the moment, this merging of of compliance with privacy, right? Which I think is, is really where the Holy Grail lies. Before I get into that question, though, I need to ask you a very, not particularly technical question, hard yakka. First of all, misspelt, 1K. Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe yeah, our listeners don't understand what this is about, but like, why would I care about a place called Hard Yakka? Can you explain?
2: So like if you uh, have a leak in your sewer system and you have to dig it up and it leaks all over the place you got to clean up that mess, that's Australian slang for hard work, Hard Yakka.
1: Yes, you nailed <laughs> it. It's, it's, uh, it's an Aussie slang for hard work. Exactly. I was wondering where you were going with the sewer image there, but yes, Hard Yakka. <laughs> and I'm just
2: a dumbass, I'm just a dumbass that when I got the name, I thought I was lucky. But, yeah, uh, I actually just spelt it wrong. That's why I got the name. Oh, that's but we, okay. I, we decided yeah. to stick with it. You're like
1: all those parents who thought they got a cool name for their kids and misnamed Michael with an E-A-L rather than AEL an and things like that.
2: But the, the origin of our fund was from down under with the initial investments we went. Oh, okay, with fair enough. And uh, my lead architect was the son of the real Crocodile Dundee. Oh, so there is some legit. Okay, wow.
0: Australian.
1: The son of Paul Hogan is a lead architect of uh, this. He's that's... not the real. Crocodile. Oh, the real one, as in, as in Steve Irwin, or the, which uh, like some other character.
2: Barry oh, Crump. Barry <laughs> Crump, the true croc hunter. Barry
1: Crump. All right. The guy is modeled on. Right. So, <laughs> so I do think this is really a critical moment. Can you explain how we get there? Like, this is the sweet spot, right? Somehow a model that keeps all the regulators happy. And, you know, Sheila and I go on and on and on on this show about why we think KYC AML is a really problematic, overly burdensome system that really locks people out of the system and that we need to resolve this. But nonetheless, it's a reality, right? And then yes, privacy, security, you know, a lot of stuff that doesn't necessarily fit with that right now, because the current model says, I need to see everything. I need to know who you are, literally know your customer, et cetera, et cetera. How do you find the realm in which those two things can coexist?
2: So in the old days, legacy days, either a corporation or a government owned your identity. Now it's possible with verifiable credentials and zero-knowledge proofs for you to go on an Easter egg hunt and collect a bunch of credentials, things you can prove about yourself, whether it's your phone number, your government ID that you can log into a particular account, belong to a social media net, whatever those things are, you can collect a bunch of proofs and carry them around and go wherever you go and use them again and again. And what does that mean? It means that in the future, or really the present now, one of the things we're buying is a bank. That bank could issue a capital-efficient, insured, compliant, i.e., you could not hold this coin without these credentials, alternative to a stable coin that everybody anywhere in the world could hold, anyone who has those credentials. And so now you have a US dollar instrument that trades 24-7, So it's very different from USDC or Tether because it's insured, it's compliant, and yet it's still private and secure. That's now possible. And so a developer, whether you're developing for the metaverse or you're the brave browser, they could have those credentials, not have to know the identity of the people, know that they're compliant, and they can rock and roll with a US dollar asset that is FDIC insured. That's the merger of the promise of crypto with the legacy world. And you can put a card on top of that and spend it anywhere MasterCard and Visa are accepted. That's the bridge between the old and the new. And that's the sweet spot that we play in. And that's what happens in crypto winter. People actually work on taking the new and grafting it to the old at scale. So- So can
1: I have a go at visualizing it? Do you get a lot of people who just in the blockchain space who are just so dismissive? Okay, we're giving banks this power. That's the They're the bad guys. They're the guys who have been monitoring us and surveilling us all this time. And so- What's so different about this, right? If I understand it right, there's a KYC process that's that's happened at the bank, basing it on credentials that are not necessarily something to do with your PII. Right. That's then turned into this bundle. It's because of zero knowledge proofs and various other cryptographic tools. This thing is now identifiable by others or recognizable, I should use, not to confuse these terms, by other entities as being already a proven, pre proven KYC thing based on that. I don't know who Greg Kidd is, but I do know that this token I got was received from somebody or a node or an entity that has gone through this process and therefore is trusted. And so the system can keep to operate under that framework of an otherwise anonymous structure. Is that, is that a reasonable way to talk it, it back?
2: The question is, can a bank or the Brave browser or whoever is doing right. this know enough about you? Mm-hmm that you're compliant without actually knowing what your name is, what your phone number is, what your email is. But they know that it's been confirmed by trusted sources so that they can do a transaction. If that transaction turns out to be involved with a bomb going off or fraud, then there's a process with a warrant with due process to find out those identifiers behind that identity. But unless something goes wrong, there's no right or ability to gain access to that information. And that's that Uncomfortable with space between the folks that are like total privacy freaks and don't want to be able to unpack anything and sort of ignore the fact that we live in a world where like one country invades another and there are sanctions, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the world of like George Orwell, either you know, China right. or creepy Facebook, or, you know, somebody is looking <laughs> over your shoulder and knows everything. And the advantage of this for the types of players I am citing is if you know the credentials are good, you don't have to create a honeypot of private data which we know is all going to get hacked.
1: Get a hack. hack. nothing to, yep. hack.
2: Uh-huh. Nothing to mm-hmm. hack if all you have is the credentials. You just get a bunch of check marks and there's no, there's no honeypot. Right. And, and so that's the attractive thing for not actually holding that PI. It's a very different world from GDPR, which is like trust the government or trust big companies to keep your data. safe. we're in the Nancy Reagan world, which is just say, no, don't give out the private data in the first place. Just give out proofs about the data. That's the edge we're on now of, of moving to that credential-based world.
1: Okay. And banks are buying into this? I mean, they're, they're okay with this? They're supporting it? Well, not all banks. No. Not
2: even 1% of banks, but, you know, banks I'm buying, you know, the management we're going to put in place, that's what they're thinking. They're like, okay. they're they're in that new reality. So we're so talking have- about the tipping point.
1: I have one other quick question before I'm going to let Sheila jump in, but like just um, so you know, the expression, right? Facebook knows that you're going to break up with your partner before you do, right? This idea that (laughs) it's possible to, to, uh, plot a bunch of data points together and then arrive at conclusions about a person, whether it is their PII or other aspects that you would not actually want known to them. Right. Um, how do we deal with that, right? Because we can all say, yes, I've hidden a bunch of data that I don't want out there, but my footprints through the net and all of the different ways in which I'm connected to my transactions eventually create a profile without me even realizing. Uh, I, I've actually had some people suggest that the only way is through some sort of homomorphic encryption solution that, that just like really breaks up all the data itself into tiny little pieces. And therefore there is no footprint, but it still fulfills the need of a zero knowledge proof structure. That sounds probably more nerdy than we need to get into right now. Nonetheless, what do you say to those folks who say, look, AI is going to get this anyway. So how do we protect against that?
2: There's no perfect protection. Patterns are patterns. There's a reason that the NSA goes after phone metadata. Mm. If Hmm. you really want to catch bad guys, look at who's talking to who, you're eventually going to find out like, how they catch the guy who ran Silk Road, mm-hmm. they looked at who was talking to him. How they catch Osama bin Laden, they followed all the couriers. So if you can see somebody's graph of who they interact with. You're going to be able to say, who are you talking to? Mm-hmm. But a defense against that, one of the things we say is you don't have to have just one identity. Your identity is not your physical live being. You can have personas, just like you had multiple handles on Twitter or on Skype. But what you can have behind that is proofs that that party is trusted enough to do what they're doing so if you want to have more than one identity for some of these things that are kind of like you know very occasional and you want that to be much more private by all means do so but if a bomb goes off or there's been theft or kitty porn or whatnot there is going to be guys with badges that are Mm -hmm. going to be looking but for normal privacy just like avoiding the creepy facebook world having multiple personas is a way of basically minimizing that exposure.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. What this really boils down to is, you know, who needs to know what and when and why and for how long, really, right? Because in some cases, you need to kind of know something uh, to execute a transaction, for example. You have to have certain information. Once that's done, you have zero reason to have that information, you know, unless that occasion occurs again, right? And to your to your point about persona, we already operate in the world in this way. People have their professional identity. In some cases, that's a different name. Many women have a professional name, and they have a you know a, a different name or whatever it is. Uh, women in particular, but other people as well. And um, you've got your your parental family kind of relationships and how you're seen that way, which sometimes can also be a different moniker. You know, you might have a different grandma grandparents in particular, right? Like there's all these different ways you're known in your community and in, in your in your world. And there's different aspects of your personality and particularly your information that are relevant to those different parts of how you walk through your day. And and the question for me has always, I think we've kind of tackled data hygiene practices that became very popular post-GDPR, right? Kind of tackled the sort of, for how long do you need to have a thing? And the idea that you should just kind of mass delete a lot of stuff that, you know, people were, companies were holding for a long time. But it didn't get to this point of, you know, why do you need some of that information? And in some cases, the only reason you need some of that information is because a regulation tells you that you are responsible for that information. Not because it's actually useful to affect the thing, it's simply because there is some governmental or other authority telling you you need to see that in some fashion. But yeah, go ahead.
2: So let me just give a comment on that. So people often, and I'm an ex-regular, I come from the Fed, they often confuse you have to have the information versus you have to have access to the information. Correct, exactly. And so access doesn't mean you have to have it, it just means you need to get it when you need it. And so for something like I'm buying something on Amazon, does Amazon actually need to know who I am? Well, they need to know they're getting paid, but the payment transaction versus the thing that is getting put in the box versus the delivery of the box, those are three different things. And you can actually keep those things separate. They can be connected back together again with a warrant, with due process for need, but otherwise there's no reason Amazon needs to know who's buying something from Amazon. You might say, "Well, how are they going to ship it? Well, they put it in a box. There's a label on it. FedEx picks it up. They put another label on for who it's going to and where, and they don't know what's in the box. And it, you know, so you can just break the data apart and have access to it on an as-needed basis without everybody having a copy of this information."
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And for anyone who this might be, like, you know, how could that be? I I, you know, I bought a stocking on Etsy the other day from Candy Llama 75. I will never know who that person is, who that, what their real name is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in the slightest. Now, I understand it doesn't necessarily scale to like multi-billion dollar, you know, arms deals or whatever, right? Where there's an interest the government would have and maybe knowing who those people are, or having access to back out their transaction there. And that's what we're talking about in the context of national security. But for the average retail transaction there really is no need to know the identity of the party as opposed to some personi that maybe you can track. You know, you're like, oh, I really like the products of Candy Lama 75. I want to be able to find them again. That's helpful to them. It's helpful to me. But who that real person is, is entirely irrelevant to our exchange. Absolutely. So how do you layer in then this national security lens, right? So you mentioned Silk Road, you know, that, that obviously there was a lot of investigation that happened there, the following of the couriers of Bin Laden. How do you layer in some legitimate, I think, maybe I'm being presumptuous, but I would say, I think the three of us would agree, there are some legitimate interests on the part of the U.S. government and other governments and identifying some of these actors or having the ability to spot when they are engaging in these, again, massive level transactions uh, that are not to the, they're not (laughs) pro-social in their orientation, let's put it that way. How do you layer that in?
2: Well, behind every action that's taken that, where somebody buys something, we live in an exchange society, communists or capitalists, we we buy things. There's always an ultimate beneficial owner. So that data exists. It's just when does it get put back together again? And so the funny thing is, if you steal a little bit of crypto, eh, but you steal enough crypto, usually someone's going to investigate that. And those people actually get caught. It's just how bad does someone want to catch you? So knowing that when it really matters, you know you can go back and find things with, with warrants, with due process. I mean, that's there. And so national security can happen. Most of the money that gets laundered, like some of my people, we looked at the $200 billion that got laundered, not through crypto, but through Danske Bank, through a small branch in Estonia, the Deutsche Bank. And some of it ended up in the pocket of a former president of ours. You know, you can put Humpty Dumpty back together again with immutable blockchains. So, mm. this new technology, if you really are a bad guy and you're going to do it at a big scale, this is a bad technology to do yeah. it on because, mm-hmm. like the Terminator, you can run, but you really cannot hide. Um, <laughs> so, long story short, this is not the technology for bad guys. In fact, the morality of this new technology is it simply makes it easier to be good than to be bad. That might not sound like a very high standard, but you know that if you're doing something bad at scale, hmm Someone trying hard enough is going to find you.
0: Near is a revolutionary yet simple Web3 platform for building decentralized apps. Designed by developers for developers, over 700 projects are now building on Nier's fast, secure, and scalable protocol. Whether you're a crypto native launching DeFi apps, NFT marketplaces, and play-to-earn games, or looking to migrate your project from Web2, Near makes it easy to build Web3 for the masses. Near offers developers a variety of tools, resources, and support for building apps, empowering communities, and creating a more fair, inclusive, and equitable future. Start your Web3 developer journey now by visiting Near at near.org. That's N-E-A-R dot I find it hilarious, this concept of de minimis theft, right? Like, I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're right. There's a certain kind of threshold at which nobody, nobody really cares. And in fact, we kind of saw this around Tornado Cash where there were so many wallets that got dusted. Yep. And while, you know, that hasn't said, you're totally off the hook, they've said, like, that's just really not our priority, right? right? Again, this is de minimis kind of concept. So I find that very, very interesting.
1: Yeah, I actually like it as well. Uh, I mean, people will know like, I'm long on privacy, right? Really care about this, really long on Specifically because I think it's also very important for financial inclusion to reduce the burden of identity on access. However, other people would know me would know I'm also a complete pragmatist, right? That you've you've got to find something that's gonna keep everyone happy. And what I like about this is I think it is the right way to frame the debate. And Sheila, you know, you actually talking to these people in Washington can be part of this to sort of explain this is how the West wins, right? Because Western governments don't need all those details at every given moment. China kind of does, right? There's a model, an authoritarian government wants all that information and uses it. It's part of the framework of how you you go about governing. But if you have a political system that is built around this idea that there is a realm in which the human being is protected from the invasions of the state, that there is this privacy piece of this. You can actually sort of like build a model that, yes, gets the security that you need as a nation, as a state, but also gives you that level of essentially what I would say is competitive advantage. So when we move into a world where there are competing digital currencies, and that's the digital dollar versus the digital yuan, or some other thing for that matter, the idea that we've got sufficient privacy and maybe sufficient security is a compelling way to frame the debate. so I suppose Greg, I'd like to know like what are you hearing from folks in this sort of international security framework and whether they are. US government, maybe other, other Western governments as well and, and you know in how some of these concepts can feed into whatever it is they're going to build with CBDCs or whatever is the actual digital money model of the future
2: Well, there's, there's still a we're not past the tipping point yet where some of the policymakers and regulators are still sort of smoking the crack pipe. Like mm. I hear the talk about the central bank digital currency. Yeah. And you ask them, well, who can hold it? And they're like, well, it's for our citizens. You mean, well, what about residents? Oh, them too. What? Well, what about mm. tourists from another country? Uh how about remittances overseas? What about mm. trade? And they're like, who invited you to this conference? <laughs> well, or like the europeans ah, who, ah you know <laughs> Come like, away, uh, up.
1: please don't talk about know, like that
2: those are edge cases i'm like no tourism is not an edge case remittances trade th- those aren't cases. if you have a digital central bank digital currency that doesn't work like the us hundred dollar bill which is sitting under mattresses in right. iran it's and, not a digital that currency, is fundamentally yeah. a, a lousy product that, that mm. no one would that that's like that's like zell on turds you know it's like, <laughs> <laughs> and look, the European approach, I don't know if you've seen the, the new legislation that they said, well, we'll just put a we'll put a cap on US dollar-based stable coins, like that there can only be a thousand of those that happen in Europe a year, like Tether or USD. I'm like, what does that even mean? There can only be a million USDC transactions in Europe. What are you talking about? A, a stablecoin isn't place oriented. So, all right, the thinking is still at that low. I I know you guys are frustrated, or you like, you know, you want to take a victory lap, but but that awareness will will come, and it's being forced because you know these things are out. We're not talking theoretically; they're already out in the wild and in the market. And younger kids are moving up. There will be a reckoning if China says to its citizens, "We don't want you holding a U.S. dollar." deposit token or stablecoin issued by like the US it's sitting in a non-custodial wallet the question is like well how do you stop that just like how do you stop people from like hoarding gold or putting 100 dollar bills under the mattress it's it's just not possible so we're not having a philosophical discussion here we're having a practical discussion and knowing that that is is part of the reality will force the issue and then we will move to okay like well given that this is going to happen how can we do it in a way that is compliant, that is privacy-preserving, that is secure. Now, totalitarian governments are going to have a hard time coming up with an answer, and even Europeans and a few Americans. But it's coming, and that's really my message. I'm not the disruption. I Hmm. am the messenger. I happen to know a lot of disruptors. I put milk in their fridges, but (laughs) it is coming. And so you get to choose how you deal with it. But, you know, it is coming. It is not a theoretical possibility. It's already here. Mm-hmm. It's just not at full scale yet.
0: And I just love that this is a time during this, this middle, you know, to your point, Michael, where a lot of this is being focused on, right? Like how do we instantiate a lot of these concepts into real tech that's got staying power, that becomes kind of critical infrastructure for the, you know, foundation for a lot of other things to be built upon? And how do we recast this? And I, I think it just starts from this basic questions, you know, why have things emerged in our environment the way they have? Why did we default to this massive overcollection of information in the first place? How do we distinguish, to your point, the need to kind of have something versus have access to it when you can prove you need it? And shouldn't that proof go both ways? Yep. Shouldn't you have to prove you really need the access before you get it as opposed to just the default, right? And even now you go, you look at kind of old school forms that you fill out the amount of information that, that many places are still collecting is just beyond the pale. It's really quite ridiculous, really, and, and unnerving, <laughs> to say the least. So I think it, it really behooves a lot of us, those working in policy like me and, you know, my entire team, but also others to just ask these questions publicly, right? Like get into this debate. It's a healthy debate to have. And I think the answers uh, when you don't take as default what our current system requires, you know, are, are, are quite compelling. I think they're quite compelling to the point of this conversation.
2: I often say I said, you know, when they say you're going to give this deposit token or stable coin to everyone in the world, I'm like, I have a secret for you. Wells Fargo, they even sign up French people. So if you can't <laughs> explain to me like why Wells Fargo will let a French person open a bank account, well, it's just that principle. I'm not yeah. asking for new authority yeah. or new permissions. It's just that the extensibility of this technology yeah. means what Wells Fargo is already doing could be done for everyone. On an inclusive basis in a more secure and more private way, but just as compliant. And so get ready, buckle up, because like French people have been getting bank accounts at Wells Fargo. And then the people who say, well, you know, well, what about the Iranians that you can't be giving accounts to Iranians? I'm like, you know, there's Iranians living in Iran. Do they have bank accounts? Oh, yes. Well, what about Americans living in Iran? Do they have bank accounts? Oh, yes. Well, you mean, just Iranians living in around that, that's the problem. So, you know, it's those logic. If you can't tell me the rule such that a people of group of coders sitting in the room can write that down into software, it's not a rule. It's just a feeling. <laughs> and, you know, that's not what laws, regulations, and, you know, the real world we live in are based on. I, you may feel like you want to like block that, but be specific. If it's this and this and this person that's on the sanction list, we'll block them. Unless you really want to put out a policy that says, you know, we just don't like Venezuelans, you know, discriminate against Ven. Like, what does that even mean? Like, Venezuelans, like people, like, what do you mean by that? Because I got coders over here who've got to write the software and being discriminatory, excluding people, it's hard to do in software. Now, excluding and catching bad actors that are specific bad actors, not just sort of a feeling about a, Group of people that kind of look like this set of attributes, that's a different thing. And so it's now time to get down to brass tacks and really catch bad guys as opposed to go through a checkbox exercise and basically just trying to stay out of trouble with the regulators. Let's actually get and find out who owns those mansions in the UK. If you can't prove who owns it, like, well, guess what? Get out because now we own it, right? Like, it's that type of thing, you know, should be worrying for the real bad actors, but for all the rest of us, no problem.
0: Or we could just assume that those mansions are owned by French people with Wells Fargo bank accounts. <laughs> <laughs> could, be, could, could be, but yeah. who knows? Who knows? Listen, I couldn't think of a better place to wrap this. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that uh, the ability to inject bias, whether maliciously, intentionally, or, or accidentally into systems is pretty high when you don't have to justify it in the way you're talking, the kind of hard-nosed practical way you're talking about. And I do think that getting back to basics and saying, if you can't codify something, there are feelings that can be codified, but the process of codifying those feelings is going to bring to light that some of those feelings are pretty messed up. And they're they're based on, you know, uh, half-truths, untruths, or utter nonsense, you know, that that is just uh, favoring certain people, certain parts of the world over other parts of the world. And that's something that we've seen embedded into our system, in part because... It has been to some extent. I love this framing, feelings based, you know, or or gut based, as opposed to really kind of hard nosed and, and and fact based. Uh, so thank you, Greg, so much for kind of laying this out for us. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to say that
1: my here. my takeaway yeah. here, uh, other than some wonderful insights from Greg, uh, is the phrase uh, "zelon turds." Uh, that, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's gonna, that's going to last me with me for a while. But New sorry hashtag. about that. Just had to point that out. Hashtag, yeah. yeah.
0: There you go. Hashtag. Well, thank you, Greg Kidd, uh, Global ID. Thank you, Michael Casey, as always, my co-host. Uh, and come back next week and join us for another episode of Money Reimagined.
2: Very good. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bye- Greg. Bye.
0: Bye. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Announcements by Abby Levine and our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.